Well, good morning, church, and uh, buenos dias, mis hermanos. I always want to say Merry Christmas. This is the Sunday prior to Christmas, so I want to wish everyone out there, out here in this sanctuary, and everyone online, uh, both from our own church family and those who may be tuning in, it is our fervent prayer that we have a blessed Christmas, a beautiful Christmas. It reminds me, however, uh, I read this this week, um, written by a preacher in town. I just happen to, you know, I don't normally surf the net, but every now and then I'll plug in things and, you know, normally dealing with the sermon, I'm curious uh, what others have to say. And this is what he said. He said, well, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. What a miserable year. Masks and social distancing, families locked in their homes, children locked out of school, lost jobs, sickness and pain, churches are closed. These are very dark times. Oh, by the way, Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, I, th I think the person who wrote it, actually, as I continued reading this message of his, um, that that's precisely the same thought that I had in mind. We live, this year anyway, in dark times. And sometimes, I know in the, case, in, the, in the course of the year, especially from Thanksgiving forward, when I've talked with other Christians about celebrating these wonderful holidays, and they kind of reply, at least in thought, if not the exact word, let's just drop the Mary, let's exchange gifts, and let's get on with 2021. And that may be the thought of a lot of folks, I don't know. I can tell you, uh, and, and, and I'm there somewhat, but in truth, darkness, Barry, darkness is the perfect setting to experience light. It's a perfect setting. It's, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's dark, I fear no evil, why? For thou art with me, Emmanuel, God with us. This is really, of all the Christmases I've loved and experienced with you the last, um, this is our 15th Christmas, you know, from 2005, um, when we first arrived here. I think this uh, has helped Debbie and me perhaps any, at, at, uh, uh, more than any other time in those 15 years. Because truly, light, when it shines through in the darkness, is just brilliant. Just brilliant. This must have been, by the way, how, um, how the Israelites felt. Well, if we can get this going here. Um, actually, the Judeans. Now, this is a text that we all use during this season. Isaiah 9 and verse 2, all the way through verse 6. Uh, the people have walked in darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in land of darkness on them has light shined. For to us a child is born. That's verse 6. To us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want you to know the setting of this, by the way. The setting of this is about 750 years before Christ. It's during the reign of King Ahaz, who was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. 
succeeded only by Hezekiah, the good king. In fact, some believe that Hezekiah, pardon me, that Isaiah 7:14, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, um, you know, which means God with us. You know, that, that text initially referred to Hezekiah. We don't really know. The, the context might say otherwise, but at the very least, when King, a, when, when King Ahaz was in charge, there was oppression throughout the entire country. There was famine, uh, death, sickness, pain. He had made a pact with Assyria that Isaiah said, you must not do, you know, Yahweh says, you will not make this pact, and the wicked king Ahaz makes the pact. And so in this dark time, Isaiah prophesied, and he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then he prophesies that a Savior will come, and he shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Matthew takes the Isaiah 7 text and the Isaiah 9 text and shows that it was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But there is something about darkness and when the smallest light shines forth. Now, what I want to do this morning is talk about three things. I mentioned this to Debbie uh, last night. She says, that, that might be kind of long. And I said, no, we're going to make this short. But I want to talk about the Christmas narrative. And I nearly dropped the word Christmas. But I thought, no, you know, I mean, it is what it is. During the, in, in, our, in our culture, we're talking about the, the, the birth narrative of the Christ child. But the whole world, at least the, the Christian world, is celebrating Christmas. So I want to talk about the Christmas narrative. And then I want to use, I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead right now. And then I want to talk about a Christmas card. And then we'll close with a Christmas gift. I want you to know, church, that there are only two passages in the New Testament that record the birth narrative of Jesus. That's Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1. So very quickly, in Luke 2 verse 10, we find uh, an angel, probably Gabriel, we don't know, he's not named, but Gabriel was used a lot to send messages. Uh, to uh, send messages. Anyway, the angel appeared before some shepherds of the field. That's all that Luke says. And said, uh, be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in the manger, implied lying in your manger. I don't know about you, but I've wondered, I think we talked about this in, in, in more detail last year, but I've always wondered, how did the shepherds know which manger, which stall, where to go. But as you read the text and then you get help from the Mishnah and other rabbinic sources as it sheds light on even our own New Testament, these were probably not any ordinary shepherds. By God's plan, these were probably Levitical priests who were trained to tend a special flock, really a group of flocks of sheep that the baby lambs would be used for sacrifice in the temple. You'll recall in Exodus 12 and verse 5, 
that the lamb used for sacrifice must be without blemish, spotless and without blemish. And so there was some very, and, and by the way, they sacrificed hundreds of lambs, especially during Passover, but all the holy days required sacrifices in the temple. And Jerusalem was only a few kilometers from Bethlehem. So these shepherds, I believe, as I read the text and read other sources, these were Levitical priests. Now, where would they know to go? God sends an angel specifically to these shepherds and says, Be not afraid, I bring you good news of a great joy for to you, 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 shepherds, you. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in your manger. There was a birthing cave. In fact, there were several birthing caves throughout Bethlehem. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but in Genesis 25, 31, there is a cave referred to as the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Yadr. And probably this is where the Levitical shepherds would take the ewes when just before they were ready to give birth. The caves were perfect places, by the way, to do this. They were relatively warm in the winter, relatively cool in the summer, and they were somewhat sterile, not sterile as we would think of, of you know, things being clean, but they were pretty clean. They would always have a uh, large limestone uh, double-hewn platform where they would take, they always had two, by the way, I mean two, two uh, places that were hewn out of the uh, limestone because when the ewes would give birth, they would place the baby lambs side by side, always two of them. They would wrap them in swaddling cloth. They had a lot of swaddling cloth, little strips, five, six inches long, and they would wrap these lambs up. Why? To prevent them from thrashing about. Why? They needed to be without blemish. And there was always, always two, so the Levitical priests, the shepherds, could inspect them. And if there were any spots, they would discard one and they would always have one. And they would do this repeatedly as the ewes gave birth. Wow. Kind of brings to life, at least for me, I hope it does for you as well. When John the baptizer on the River Jordan in John chapter 1 is with uh, two disciples, Andrew the son of John and probably John the son of Zebedee. Jesus walks toward John and John is getting ready to baptize him and he turns to his two disciples and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The shepherds knew precisely where to go. They were going to go to the birthing cave, I believe, of their own. And there is so much meaning packed into that. Well, that's one of the birth narratives, and it describes the purpose of the birth of the Christ child. Matthew 1, 20 through 23 talks about the presence of the child. An angel, we don't know because he is not named, but very possibly Gabriel, appears before Joseph in Matthew 1 and verse 20. And... Um, and says, do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds in verse 23, all this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, those are the only two passages where we have the birth narrative, the Christmas narrative, Luke 2, Matthew 1. Luke describes the purpose, Matthew 1 describes the presence, and they are absolutely beautiful texts. You could take any of these and preach a whole series on them, much less just spend a few minutes with them. But that's the narrative. Those are the words that the New Testament uses when God, through the Spirit, His Spirit, through uh, Matthew and Luke, describes this glorious event. But there is a third text. It doesn't so much as provide a narrative as much as it paints a picture. I don't know about you, but every time I read thoughts like this, I try to make it applicable to my own daily walk, and I'm thinking, Lord, that's a Christmas card. You know, where you have a beautiful uh, portrait or painting on the outside of the card, you open up and you've got these beautiful words. It's as if God was sending us a card. Inside is the narrative for Matthew and Luke, and John provides the picture the painting on canvas, a text that was read earlier by, by Caleb. In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's the portrait that's what we see. I, you know, I see this cosmos, and I see the earth, and I see God introducing salvation to all of his people. But the words that use, that really are used from Genesis 1, 1 through 3, all the way through Revelation 22, when the Bible talks about heaven, there will be no sun, there's no need of the sun. Why? Because God is light. And so this metaphor of light just permeates all of Holy Scripture. And it's there for a reason, because darkness is not created. Darkness is simply the result of light not being present. And when our lives feel dark, when this year feels dark, you know, whether it's a physical darkness or whether it's a spiritual or emotional darkness, generally we need to kind of back up and say, all right, Lord, where are you? Because if you're present, there is no darkness. Uh, Debbie and I have always enjoyed, um, always, what a superlative. For the last several years, we've enjoyed going to East Tennessee. I had never, we, honestly, we had only been there one time in our life before we moved here. And that was, uh, I think, our 25th anniversary. I think we went um, somewhere around Pigeon Forge from Alabama. Had never been to Tennessee and then, of course, Shane comes here to go to school, and we move here, and, and it was always part of God's plan. But Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, that area, we really do enjoy, and I know you do too. And there are other places in this wonderful, beautiful state that we enjoy looking at. But we've enjoyed Gatlinburg uh, most, I, I think. And the reason, or one of the reasons, is because we enjoy walking through the art galleries and just seeing all the wonderful paintings. We've sort of been introduced, even though Thomas Kincaid's been around quite a while, to artists like Kincaid and, and um, 
Abraham Hunter and Mark Keithley. By the, way, uh, uh, by the way, all three of them are faithful Christians. I know Keithley and Hunter are. And anyway, you can look at their work. Invariably, many artists, at least from the galleries we've seen, have, an, and it's, it's a little, you know, uh, too much light here, and, and you don't have to dim the lights at all, but I can tell you that w invariably, these artists have at least one winter scene. And in that winter scene, normally there's snow on the ground and usually piney woods and makes, makes me think of East Texas or, or East Tennessee. There are pines out there. The snow is on the ground. The snow is blanketing the trees. It's a dark night. Uh, you might see a sliver of moon, maybe a few stars. And then in the distance, this is not quite the distance, but in the distance there is often a cabin. And in the cabin is a single lamp. I've seen it on the front porch. I've seen it in the window seals. Uh, this one looks like it's inside the house. But that little glimmer. So here's these, these masterful artists, and everything is dark. Everything paint, everything dark. And then they take their brush, and they dip it with yellow tints. And somehow, by their incredible skill, they can put a few strokes on the canvas, and every person who sees it, 80% is dark, 10 or 15% is light, and all the eyes go to the light. First thing you see, regardless of the size of the canvas, the larger ones are even more so. Light is special. With light, um, surgeons can take a a laser and they can you know remove a cataract and how many times has light just done so much for us and I think of Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning another in the beginning Genesis 1 and John 1 from then on it changes the words but in the same thought by the way in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness moved over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God uh, moved over the face. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he called the light good. Good. Light is good. Light, spiritual light through Christ, la luz del mundo, the spiritual light saves our souls, and the physical life gives us life on this side of eternity in all sorts of ways, the whole photosynthesis of plants and so forth. I can tell you that, and I, was, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story, but I will. I, th I think I can do it very quickly. Um, I was not allowed in the delivery room of our two oldest sons, of John, Mark, and Eric. But at Shane's birth, I was allowed in. And a midwife delivered the, this little baby boy. But there were complications throughout the whole procedure. The midwife was alarmed. I could tell she was alarmed. Later she told Debbie, she said, man, your, your son, who is a healthy little boy, had two strikes against him. And I think it's all by God's grace and mercy and, and his whole plan. Anyway, in the course of the delivery, and I'm over there in the corner, there's only, of course, Deb and the midwife, and she had one, one person with her, I think, sort of a blur. 
But I was over there thinking, man, I don't even know I should be here. And I was trying to get a glimpse, but I thought, I don't know if I really want to get a glimpse. And all of a sudden, there was only one light in the room, and it was the operating light. And it goes out. Lights go off. I mean, it'd be as black as this room right here if you turned every light out. It was black. All I remember is the midwife hollering, get me a light. <laughs> get me a light. I need light. Now, I thought light went out throughout the whole hospital. This was in Phoenix, Arizona, military hospital. But it was just that one delivery room. The, I don't know, something happened to that one single light. So, you know, the generators didn't kick on because the power wasn't out. And so as and this was, it seemed like forever, and I knew there was a problem with the delivery. And she did too, and she wanted light right then. Well, it didn't take, I'm, I'm sure, but seconds, and someone brought a light in, and they gave it to me. It was, on, it was on those, you know, with the wheels on it, you roll it. She gave it to me, and I thought, she needs it, not me. <laughs> and then I remember her saying, Mr. Whittington, give me light. And I just held it over, you know. <laughs> I won't go much further, but I held it over, and I thought, oh, man, you know. <laughs> and the baby was delivered, Michael Shane, healthy little boy, God's gift to us, and I believe God's gift to you, as we are to each other, light. Man, there is something special about light. We cannot live without it. But there is something else there, too. Let me back up. We have the narrative, we have the words of the Christ child. To you is born a Savior this day, this will be a sign. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a very special manger to symbolize what he will do for the entire world. The Lamb of God. We have the narrative, and we have this incredible portrait. But as any child will tell you, Christmas is not Christmas without the gift. So John continues in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, you know, the same was with God in the beginning, nothing was made uh, that was not made through him. In him was life, and this life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then further on down, John writes, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world, and to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Now, what do you think the word receive? You know, we, that's used within Christian circles. Have you received Christ as your Savior? I've been asked that a thousand times. My answer is yes, of course I have. Yes. And I have, and so have you. Most of you, I presume all of you. But what does it mean to receive Christ? Another full sermon by itself. But there's a special word. It's not really a special word, but it's an interesting choice of words that John uses. What do you think it means to receive Christ? If I were to ask you, have you received Christ? What would be the process of, of answering that question? 
It, it, it's also not by accident that we are called the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ and Christ is our groom. The Greek lambano, it means to grasp or to take, to receive. It's not just somebody giving you something. You say, okay, I guess I'll take this since you gave it to me. No, there's a grasping involved. The word literally means to take. It's the same word that was used not only in our modern wedding ceremonies, but goes back for millennia. Michael, do you take Debbie to be your lawfully wedded wife? And do you promise to love and cherish and respect her in sickness and in health, in sorrow as well as joy, in adversity as well as prosperity, until you die? Do you make that commitment? Do you make the promise to take her? And Debbie, do you take Michael to be your lawfully wedded husband? And do you promise to love and cherish and respect and obey? We use the word obey. It could have gone both ways with us. Obey in sickness as well as in health, in sorrow as well as joy, in adversity as well as prosperity. Until death do you part. I said, I do. She said, I do. 48 and a half years ago, we said, I do. But is there a one-time reception? Is there a one-time oath-keeping moment? And then for the next 48 and a half years, nothing's, <laughs> nothing's done? Of course not, because it would be, it would be an anathema to that very uh, solemn oath that you took. Something else, do you make a mistake? Have I ever not, I'll use myself, have I ever not loved, cherished, and respected her in sickness and sorrow and adversity? Yeah, there have been moments. It's a covenant. It's a relationship. And when I tell the Lord and you tell the Lord, that's why you die to sin. Romans 6. How can you still live in sin if you're dead to sin? And then Paul asked this rhetorical question to the Romans. Do you not remember, do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him in baptism. This covenant relationship that as he was raised by the glory of the God, we too shall walk in the newness of life, life. Receiving Christ is a daily renewal. If you say, well, I received him 48 years ago or whenever it was, 60 years ago or three years ago, you do it every single day. That's why the apostle John, God through John, gives us this out because he knows we've broken our vows. He is faithful, 2 Timothy 2.13, but we are, we are faithless. We've broken the vows. How many times have you broken the vow between you and your husband, Christ, you and God? How many times? Countless. So what happens? Well, God, knowing this, says, if you walk in the light, you know, John writing, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, present tense, from all of our sins. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he 
is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People have asked me, what is the secret to a joyful, happy marriage? I could ask all of you the same question. And I've been asked that by the airmen and soldiers and so forth for years and years and years and years, and now in the last 15 by many, of, by many uh, uh, real frankly, by many of you. And I always want to think, man, I've got to get this right. And the truth is, I only have one word to say because it talks about it's the same word that keeps God and Michael tight and God and you tight. It's the same word. We're in a, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship, intimate, salvation. It's a marriage. And people say, well, is it love? Well, of course it's love. Love is the answer to everything. But I believe that God gave me the one word, and it's in this text, which allows me unearned salvation. And the word is forgive. me. How in the world can any married couple... By the way, we're not talking only commitment. You can be miserably married because you're committed. We're talking about a joyful marriage. Joyful marriage is not exclusively commitment. Joyful marriage is forgiveness. It's when Debbie forgives me and I forgive her and you forgive your wife and your wife forgives you. It's every relationship. Joe, David, and I are good friends. When we sin against each other, the only way we're going to retain a relationship is if I say, I'm sorry. I'm so, I truly am sorry. Forgive me. And then Joe David has to say, You're, okay, I do forgive you. I, you know, I do. You're my brother. And then what do you do? The word forgive means to send it away. A fiume, send it away as if the offense never happened. That's what God does for us when we receive him. And the word believed can also be translated comfortably, trust. The true life that enlightens every man was coming into the world and to all who received him, who trusted in his name. Trust what? Trust his promise, the oath that he took when he married you. And he gave the power to become children of God. This is what, that's really what the season's all about. It's a daily renewal of our faith in Christ. The Christ child came, you know, God in the flesh, dwelt among men, full of grace and truth. Lived and died, and to all those who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, he promises to save you. So this is what I'd like for us to do, to think about. As you relate with the Lord, remember that you receive him all the time. When you wake up of a morning, it's, Lord, I'm here with you. You've forgiven me. I'm here. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. Soy la luz del mundo. I am the light of the world. This morning, church, I invite everyone, all of us, to rededicate ourselves 
to our Lord and our Savior, to receive him, if you will, all over again, to remind ourselves who we are and to whom we belong and how the light of God can come into a dark spot and just illuminate it by saving us and just making life more joyful. If you feel the need to come down and pray with one of your shepherds or just sit here on the front pew or find somebody else in the congregation you want to pray with, lift those prayers up. And the light of the world, I promise you, will illuminate them and we will be joyful as we stand for this song and sing God bless.